Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today, I'm talking with Greg Creech, who's an expert in Morita therapy, a form of Japanese psychology that turns many of our Western ideas about mental health and well-being on their head. In our conversation, we start with a discussion of the uniquely feelings-focused approach to emotional health that is so characteristic of Western psychology and how Japanese psychology offers a useful alternative. Covering topics from anxiety and depression to procrastination and stage fright, the underlying theme of our discussion is the importance of taking a purpose-centered approach to emotional health rather than an emotion-centered one. We discuss why the concept of acceptance is key to building a robust emotional life and how the simple art of taking action can be surprisingly effective at remedying so much of our emotional suffering. Greg Creech, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. It's nice to be here with you. So tell us a little bit about Morita therapy and how you first became interested in Japanese psychology more generally. Well, I'll tell you one of my earlier stories. I, I had uh, moved to Washington, D.C. I was in my uh, early 20s, uh, just a bit out of college, and uh, I'd gotten my first solo apartment. I had a one-bedroom apartment all to myself. It was very exciting. I lived in Alexandria, Virginia, outside of D.C., and I was uh, I had made myself dinner, and I was about to eat and realized that I didn't have any clean dishes. Uh, because all my dirty dishes were stacked quite high in the sink in the kitchen. So uh, the reason I didn't have any clean dishes was that I hadn't washed those dirty dishes. And the reason I hadn't washed them is that I didn't feel like washing them. What I found is actually as the stack got higher, I felt less and less like washing them. Uh, and, and so, but I had nothing to eat on or actually eat with at that point. Everything was dirty. Uh, so I did what any self-respected, self-respecting uh, young bachelor would do. And, and I ran out quickly to a convenience store and bought paper plates. Uh, and I think that is a pretty good description of where I was in my 20s, uh, which from a psychological standpoint, I was in a place where my life was pretty much determined by my feeling state. So if I didn't feel like doing something, I mostly didn't do it. And if uh, I did feeling, feel like doing something, uh, I often did do it, which also got me into trouble in other ways, particularly in relationships with women. Uh, and when I first uh, discovered Morita therapy, uh, I see it now as, as one of the main uh, themes of Morita therapy is really helping you to make this shift from living what I would refer to as a feeling-centered lifestyle to a purpose-centered lifestyle so that your feelings, which of course are very emphasized in a lot of Western psychology, aren't the directing or directive force in your life. Uh, and by making that shift, which is a difficult shift for many people to make, but by making that shift, it's not that we no longer feel things or that uh, we're even saying our feelings aren't important because sometimes I think our feelings have an important role to play in our life if we're deciding whether they get married to somebody, for example. Um, I think it's important to see what our feelings think about that. But uh, it means that they're no longer the director of our life's play. So they're no longer giving the orders of who's going to do what and when, uh, but they're still an actor or an actress in the play. They still have a role to play in, in our life's play. And instead, uh, our purpose becomes kind of the director of our life's play. Um, what is my purpose? What's important for me to do in my life? Uh, what gives my life meaning or fulfillment? Uh, those become important questions, but they also become the questions that ideally direct what we're going to do with our time and energy. So uh, I would say that's one of the key things that characterizes Morita therapy and um, is the ability to, to make that shift from uh, focusing on our feelings to focusing on our purpose. 
tell us a, a little bit more specifically about so obviously this uh what happened with your dishes you know did this <laughs> did you discover um marita therapy and uh, get your dishes done or what, what are some other examples of maybe kind of real life examples of how this this tendency to orient our life based on how we feel as opposed to kind of what our purpose is how else does this show up for people in your experience well, it shows up, I think, in almost every facet of life, you know, whether it's dealing with food issues in our diet, whether it's dealing with relationships, um, whether it's dealing with our work life and, and careers, parenting, it really shows up to me in, in virtually everything. And uh, so, for instance, let's, let's look at relationships right now, I think, as people are, uh, in many cases, uh, in in stay-at-home situations, depending on what state you live in, uh, if you're living with a partner, one of the things that you may be finding is that spending all this time with that person, 24 hours a day for weeks and weeks, uh, that person starts to agitate you or get on your nerves. And my guess is the same thing is happening in the other direction. Uh, and so one of the things that happens is our feelings towards people, even the, even the person we're married to or someone we love very deeply, uh, our feelings really fluctuate and we can go from being uh, having this sense like oh i love this person so much i feel blessed to be you know connected to them in this intimate way and in the next moment it's like i can't take living with this you know woman or this man for one more minute i you know they're driving me crazy and uh we're, we're ready to basically you know walk out the door and get in the car and, and drive as far away as possible and I think that's the nature of feelings, that it's like a roller coaster ride in our lives. And uh, so one of the things that I think we have to learn to do in order to uh, cope with our feelings is to, on the one hand, accept them, but also be able to coexist with them without acting on them. And that's actually a skill. In fact, that's one of the four skills that, that I write about in terms of Japanese psychology is this idea of coexisting with unpleasant feelings, with discomfort, without acting on it. Or the reverse, which is coexisting uh, with um, uh, feelings where, we, where we're pushed by our feelings to take an action, like eating an entire chocolate cake or a bag of donuts or something, and, and not acting on that. So we have both the issue of restraint, um, which means essentially stepping back and not following our feelings, or we have the issue in the case of procrastination of taking action, even though we don't feel like it. Both of those require kind of the same type of skill. So, uh, so whether it's in relationships or with food or with uh, writing, if you're, if you're a writer, for example, uh, I think this is really a key area in terms of people being both uh, mentally well and successful in their lives is to be able to not succumb to our feeling states uh, or be paralyzed by uh, feelings like depression or shyness or loneliness uh, because it, it keeps us from really kind of living the life and doing the things that really would give our life meaning. Yeah, that's really well put. And I, one of the things I think, that, and I like that you you frame it up as a as a skill because i i mean i tend to agree with you i think it really is something that's um we can really develop with practice but but in some cases too i think it's the and the, the part of the reason for this whole podcast is really thinking through what does it mean i mean it sounds dumb when you say it but what does it mean to have a feeling about something what does it mean to have an emotion about something and and so I wonder if you could talk a little, so I think that's really important just to understand the nature of our emotions, which I think is something, I don't know, a lot of us, we don't, we don't take a class on that in school growing up. Most of us don't have parents who know much about it or teach us about it. So what, it seems like that's really important front and center. So what, one question I, I want to ask you about to, to dig in there a little bit more is why, why is it so, why do we have this kind of uh, over prioritization of how we feel do you think is that is that a is it in in your perspective is it primarily a, is it a biological thing is it a more of a cultural thing is it where does that come from that this kind of deification of how we feel i think it's a interesting question i would say that uh at least a significant part of the emphasis on feelings is really cultural uh because you wouldn't find this for for example in in many of the asian countries um and I think that with Marita therapy, which is 
uh, one of the therapies in Japanese psychology, you're, you're really coming from a, a different foundation. Instead of coming from this European Judeo-Christian foundation, you're coming from an Asian uh, Buddhist uh, type of foundation. And there are different values there. And I think they play out in cultures differently. So, uh, so we've developed an approach to mental health in the West that to me is very focused on feelings and the importance of feelings and understanding your feelings. Uh, the content of feelings, if you're feeling depressed about something, is something that often will get you know, processed and discussed and focused on. Um, and just even uh, when somebody walks into a therapist's office or into their friend's living room, uh, and the first question is, you know, so how are you feeling? Right? It, it sends a message to that person that that's the most important thing. Right? It's, it's more important than anything else in the world. How are you feeling? But I think uh, it's very much a cultural bias that, that we wouldn't find in other places. Uh, and I think it's developed to the point where I think it's a real weakness in many forms of Western uh, psychology and psychotherapy uh, because of an emphasis on something that I don't think we can control. So mm. we focus on an aspect of our existence, our feeling state, uh, which I don't believe we can control. Um, if we could, we could just kind of snap our fingers and, and when we're depressed and we wouldn't feel depressed, or um, you know, we could just simply will ourselves not to feel angry when we're really angry at somebody for something they said or something they did. Um, but with our, our feelings, I think uh, one of the principles in Japanese psychology is that our internal experience, which I characterize as uh, kind of this um, mix of our feelings, our thoughts, and um, even our body sensations, is really uncontrollable. So by focusing on something that's uncontrollable, I think we set ourselves up to actually not only be frustrated, but to actually suffer more because we try to control what we can't control. And when we fail to do that, I think we end up actually adding to our suffering. Uh, and so what Marita therapy does uh, is the prescription for how to cope with our feelings is acceptance, that we accept our feeling state uh, at any given moment. If we're feeling resentful, if we're feeling angry, if we're feeling shy, uh, we accept this is how I'm feeling right now. If we're feeling anxiety, if we're feeling nervous, this is how I'm feeling. And there's no energy to trying to change or transform or fix that feeling state. Uh, and instead, all that energy goes into how we're actually conducting ourselves in the world, our behavior, how we're living our lives. Uh, and so if, you know, I've often thought about uh, uh, in, in the early part of my life during this, this uh, period of time, both when I didn't wash dishes and prior to that, if I could take all of the energy that I put into trying to control my feelings. And if I had put it into something constructive um, that would have been important to me, I, you know, I could have accomplished a tremendous amount with that amount of energy uh, by putting it into something that was important for me to do. So that's part of that shift from a feeling-centered approach to a purpose-centered approach. It's a shift of energy from focusing on our internal experience to focusing on what, what we need to do in the world. Wow, I, there's so many points in there I would love to kind of elaborate on. <laughs> I mean, but it, it really resonates with me because as a psychologist and a therapist, arguably the biggest transformation I've experienced in the last few years um, working as a therapist, but also learning, you know, continuing to learn is I've really shifted from, I would say, thinking about the, the content of feelings, as you talk about, to mm -hmm. the nature of feelings themselves and, and helping my clients not so much change or modify the content of their feelings, but change their relationship with, with feelings more generally, which is a very, sounds like a, it is kind of a subtle point, but it's hugely important, I think. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I, I th and that's actually a shift that I teach when we do certification training in Japanese psychology. I, I almost frame it the same way you just did, which is that it's not that we're in Morita therapy that we're not interested in feelings, but we're, we, our interest is more about how feelings work. What's, what's the process of how they arise? Um, 
what's the experience of feeling de depressed? Not not the content of it, but the process of of a feeling um, uh, basically coming up for you. How long does that feeling you know stay, and how it dissipates? The kind of um, transient nature, impermanent nature of our feeling states, the wild swings that we can go through in a very short period of time, as I mentioned in our uh, relationships with people we love. So um, so it really is the nature and process of how feelings work that becomes very important. And um, I first learned about that before I actually discovered Marita therapy through um, uh, meditation. I was uh, involved in uh, Zen practice when I was very young in my uh, early 20s. I spent actually spent some uh, some time, a short period of time in Japan uh, as a Zen monk in a, a small monastery in the mountains, and we did a lot of meditation. And uh, I would watch things come up, not just feelings, but thoughts as well. You know, I would watch this come up as I was sitting for uh, in meditation for forty five minutes or an hour at a, at a time, many hours a day, and I'd notice the a, a feeling come up, feeling hungry, for example, or um, Having the thought like, "What am I doing here?" You know, like, I, this is this is ridiculous. Like, I don't belong here. And that thought would just come up, and then it would leave, and another thought would come up, and um, all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of feelings would come up, but they would all pass. Um, and I think it's it sounds very simple as an idea. It doesn't sound very profound that our our feelings and our thoughts pass, but it actually is quite profound because when you're in a state of depression or anxiety, part of that state is the um, the premise that we're going to suffer like this forever, you know, or at least for a very very long time, and that's part of I think our suffering is is that we aren't in that moment um, understanding that this feeling state in fact will pass, uh, or that these thoughts in fact will pass, uh, and. And this is something I, I'll, I'll add this to the to the mix um, because again it's a, it's a somewhat unusual idea, but the more that we um, pay attention to what's going on inside us in terms of our feelings our, and our thoughts, for example, and our body sensations, uh, the more we focus on those, the more we actually keep them alive. And by accepting them and then shifting our energy and attention someplace else, we essentially allow those feelings to run their natural course the same way that the, a storm or clouds in the sky will run its natural course. We, are, we allow our feelings to run their natural course by essentially not giving them uh, very much attention. Uh, so the approach to feelings, as opposed to working on them, um, is really to it's not that we ignore them, but we notice them, become aware of them, we accept them, and then we shift basically our energy and attention to what it is that's important for us to do. That's, okay, that, that's a great uh, segue into what, what I take personally. When I read your book, I, the, the, the concept that hit me hardest that I feel like is kind of central um, and that I find most surprising but also useful and, and true is keys in on this idea of acceptance, which I think a lot of people, at, le at least in Western culture, I think a lot of people hear the word acceptance and they, they either associate it with some sort of kind of new agey, kind of fluffy, like doesn't really mean anything, like one of those kind of ideas that is like kind of quasi mystical and, or, mm -hmm. or they, or they, they associate it with resignation, with the idea that like, well, I guess it just means I have to, you know, I'm just always going to be depressed. You know, that's just sort of the way it is. And, and this kind of, um, stuckness in it. But but the key idea that I, I took from your book is that, I mean, not only are those two views not, not true, in fact, acceptance, real acceptance is, it's actually the foundation for meaningful, productive action that you can't, you can't actually take kind of truly purpose-driven action without acceptance. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little, let's kind of dive into the notion of acceptance itself. Like what, what does that really, what does that look like exactly? Like when you work with people um, to foster acceptance of their emotions, what, what does that look like? What, what are some common dilemmas people have with it? Well, I think we could talk about it in a, in a very realistic way in terms of what's going on right now with the um, pandemic and, and people who are um, staying basically at home all the time. 
Uh, and acceptance to me is a really important piece of that. And it's a distinguishing factor in, in how much we suffer and how much we actually can continue to uh, live well during this, this time period. So uh, what I see is that people who are attached to the way things were, right, before we before this virus hit us, um, being able to go out to restaurants and being able to visit friends and being able to, you know, go to the gym and work out and, uh, and all the things that we used to do. And, um, many of us, uh, have an still have an attachment to that life, but that life isn't available to us right now. And so, um, by constantly focusing on how it used to be, which often manifests itself in complaining, right? You know, I, I People, I, I hear people say, you know, I, uh, I really miss, you know, going to the gym or I, I really miss um, music. I'm, I'm a musician and I'm in a couple of bands and I love playing live music, you know, uh, with, with other people. It's just, it's one of the greatest joys of my life. Um, and there are musicians out there who, who will just stay focused on, you know, I really miss doing concerts. I really miss being able to play with other people. And of course, it, that's true. You know, if you're a musician, you really do miss those things. But um, acceptance re means kind of um, coming to peace with the situation. I, I always try to emphasize that it's not about liking the situation. If you're diagnosed with cancer, or in this case with COVID-19, it's not about liking that. It's about um, uh, coming to peace with the situation. And the, the best way I found in terms of uh, Westerners and English language to talk about this in a way that people sometimes can connect with is it's uh, that acceptance is non-resistance. It's dropping resistance, right? Um, and so, and that comes actually from the whole field of martial arts. It's one of the ways that you can defeat an opponent who's bigger and stronger than you by non-resistance. Um, so a person who's bigger and stronger comes running towards you to attack you. And instead of like just grounding yourself firmly and getting ready for the uh, contact where you're going to get bowled over, uh, at the last second, you step aside, you stick your foot out and you trip the person, right? And, and that's a, an example of kind of non-resistance. You're not trying to go up against your opponent. Um, you're trying to defeat your opponent through non-resistance. And I think it's a great metaphor for uh, the idea of accepting our feelings. So if you feel anxious, you're not trying to go up against anxiety by, for example, trying to get yourself to feel confident or trying to change your thoughts, that instead you're not resisting uh, your anxious feelings and anxious thoughts. Um, you've let go of any resistance to those things. And by doing so, uh, I think you're much more able to cope with and in a sense to defeat that feeling state than by trying to go up against it directly. I, I love it. I, I really resonate with that. In my own work with clients, I, sometimes I talk about when it comes to our emotional suffering, there's the there's a kind of a first layer of emotional suffering, which is where you know maybe an an anxious thought pops into your head and you, you feel kind of worried about someone you love who's traveling or something like that. But then then when you start having thoughts about oh my god I'm so anxious like what if you know what if I start having a panic attack or why do I always get anxious I'm such an anxious person I wish I was more like so and so. Well, that, there's that second layer of when you start kind of fighting with your own in, inner experience that leads to all this other difficult emotion, like shame and anger and, and more anxiety. And, and so I, I see like a central part of my job is to help people come to terms with the idea that, that that first layer of emotion is really not the problem. It's surprisingly small when you subtract that whole second layer of emotion that we add on top of it with all this resistance that, that you're talking about, that, that word resistance. Yeah. And, and sometimes that, that second layer is like, why am I the kind of person that's so concerned with what other people think of me? <laughs> um, and, and so uh, it's almost like a spiral. In fact, there, there's actually a term in Japanese, in Japanese psychology, torawade, which, which describes that spiral of anxiety, you know, that we start mm -hmm. by being anxious about 
about uh, getting up on stage and playing music or standing up in front of somebody and and uh, uh, making a speech. And then it's like, well, why am I the kind of person that's so anxious about this? Why can't I be more confident? And then it's like, well, why am I the kind of person who's who's so caught up in my head? You know, why can't I just why can't I just kind of relax into this situation? Um, and all of of that, there's a, a particular kind of attention. Um, and and one of the things that really captured my interest when I first discovered Morita therapy was that it it really emphasizes the element of attention, how we are using our attention uh, in a way that I hadn't seen in other forms of psychology. And uh, and specifically in, in Morita therapy, there's this distinction between our attention, which is flowing outward, like when I look out the window and I see a um, a chickadee or a goldfinch at my feeder, my attention is is flowing outward into the world. And then there's the kind of attention that's flowing inward, which we've just been discussing, right? This issue of the, the second layer of suffering and why am I the kind of person who's so anxious about these things? Um, and that's called self-focused attention. And self-focused attention uh, is really the cause of, of a great deal of our psychological or emotional suffering. Uh, and so I came across this quote from Marita when I was first studying this, this work, where he says, anxiety is misdirected attention. Anxiety is misdirected attention. So if you are experiencing anxiety, it means your attention's in the wrong place. And it took me a while to really comprehend what was underneath that idea, but it's a very radical idea. Uh, and it's the idea that you're only anxious when you're paying attention to your anxiety. You're only depressed when you're paying attention to your depression, right? And um, it's a, an idea that's contrary to, to most of what we uh, learn and do in terms of Western psychotherapy, uh, because we see it more from this viewpoint in the West that uh, if you're, um, let's say, feeling depressed um, and you go out and, and run or you play basketball or you do something and, and you have these moments when you're actually engaged with the world and, and you're not depressed, but we see it as, well, you're still depressed. You're just not paying attention to your depression. It, it's still kind of there, right? The same way that a broken leg would be there, even if you were laughing at a funny movie while you're in the hospital. Um, but here's, an, here's a perspective, which to me is much more sensible, um, that there's kind of a screen that just keeps rolling in front of your life, kind of like a television screen. And when what's on that screen is anxiety, you're paying attention to your anxiety. And in the next moment, if you notice uh, a flock of bald eagles, you know, land right outside your living room window, and you're so astonished because you're looking right into the eyes of, you know, six bald eagles that you've never seen in your life, um, in that moment, you know, you're not anxious. You're not depressed. You're free of your um, emotional suffering in that moment. And I'm going to suggest that that's the only cure that's available to us, that anxiety, depression, loneliness, all of these kinds of uncomfortable feeling states are part of the human condition. And there is no permanent cure. There is no a permanent escape from anxiety or depression or any of these uh, uh, deeply uncomfortable feelings. But there is momentary cure, and that's the only cure that's available to us, that in this moment, I'm engrossed by the, uh, uh, the birds at the bird feeder or the um, shoots of uh, daffodils that just came up out of the ground in spring, or I'm you know noticing something else that might have to do with nature or it might have to do with uh, eating my food and eating something I've never tasted before that's delicious, that in those moments when, we're, when we're, our senses are engaged with real life, um, we're not suffering from those unpleasant feelings and those unpleasant states. So if you view that assumption as true, then your task in terms of emotional health as well as living well is how do you shift your attention so that you can be more engaged with the real world and less attentive to what's going on in your mind man that it this resonates so much with with my own thinking about um about mental health and my own profession um and, and what i do in, in psychotherapy in that i 
I'm realizing more and more, I think we, to use a jargony term here, our field does not think enough about iatrogenics in psychotherapy. The idea Mm -hmm. that sometimes the the doctor can cause the problem or can intensify the problem. And and one of the things I I see in in myself even is that we have a really hard time shaking in Western psychotherapy. We really have a hard time shaking this, this idea of insight oriented therapy, that if you just understand the content of your whatever, depression, anxiety, that somehow that's going to lead, lead to relief and alleviation. And what I've discovered so much of the time is, is a, seems like kind of a mirror of what you're talking about, which is it's, it's, it's really all about your relationship with those feelings. And, and maybe this is a good transition to the, um, another kind of topic that's really central to your book, but the idea of being good stewards of our attention that kind of attention is the fulcrum. Attention is what what everything really hinges on. And, and I, I'd love it if you could kind of talk a little bit about how when you can shift your attention and sort of change your relationship with your feeling instead of getting consumed with trying to change it or fix it or run away from it, then it allows you to actually take action in the real world. And, and that, that concept of action is so seems so central both to Morita therapy, but also to to your own thought. So I wonder if you could talk about that. How do you how do you think about the importance of action when it comes to emotional well being and, and mental health? Well, I'll tell you a, a true story, and this is a even though I've been working with this material for over thirty years, this is actually something from just a few years ago. But um, I've I play piano, and uh, a number of years ago, I I got very interested in playing blues piano blues music and really fell in love with it. And I was a living room uh, blues pianist for many years. And I decided I wanted to play with other musicians. And that meant going out to a blues jam, which is something that uh, in most cities occurs during the week where blues musicians who play different instruments get together uh, in in an evening and they go up on stage and they, they jam, they improvise in terms of blues music. Well, I had never played music on stage before. I never played in front of an audience since my recital when I was uh, uh, 12 years old. And so uh, this the idea of actually getting up on stage and playing in front of an audience in a club with people I didn't know and playing songs that I, that I didn't know until just a moment before I had to play them created tremendous anxiety for me. Um, and so... Uh, the question is how to deal with the anxiety. So one of the, the um, way that some of us are drawn to is to really try to get ourselves to feel less anxious and more confident, right? So we try to work with our thoughts and our feeling states. We try to calm ourselves down uh, so that we basically somehow can approach this task, the task of getting up and playing music on stage in front of an audience. We can approach that task with a certain level of comfort and uh, confidence. Um, but in Marita therapy, it, instead of trying to fix my internal experience, uh, it's the prescription is to accept that I feel anxious and to use that anxiety uh, as a way of shifting my energy to become a better musician, right? And so, uh, so instead of working using that energy to work on my internal experience, I'm using it to actually practice and uh, to see if I can become a better blues piano player. And so I did that for quite some time. And uh, I can't remember how many years ago this was, but it, at the beginning of the year, I said, okay, one of, one of the things I want to do before the end of the year is to actually get up on stage and play music on stage at a blues jam. And, uh, <clears throat> but again, even though I had been practicing, because you have to practice basically not only playing, but you have to be able to play in, in any key, uh, which was a real challenge for me because in the living room, I would just always play in the key of C. <laughs> so I was okay in the key of C, but if in any other key, and I found out later, by the way, that most guitarists don't play in C. They almost always play in E or A. And those were not keys that I was comfortable with at all. So um, so anyway, I, I would practice and I decided that I was going to get up on stage and I waited for till the end of the year in December to the last blues jam on a Tuesday night that before the following for Christmas and the following year. Um, and I went to the club and I was with my wife and my daughters actually came along. And <clears throat> the way this works is that the person who's facilitating the blues jam 
will uh, have a list and kind of when your name comes up, if you're a harmonica player, a guitar player, a bass player, a drummer, a piano player, they'll call you and they'll just invite you up on stage and then you, you play. And so about after about an hour of sitting there um, with all these anxious thoughts coming up and all these anxious feelings and tension in my shoulders and sweat on my forehead, I suddenly hear my name called by the person on the stage. Uh, is Greg Creech here? Uh, you want to come up and play some piano with us? And um, of course, my first thought is, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, because I was much more comfortable sitting in, in the audience listening, but uh, I have this surge of anxiety, right? Uh, in my whole, this, this whole body anxiety experience. Some of your uh, people out there will know what this is like. And as I'm having that anxiety that's manifesting physically in thoughts, in my feeling state, in a twisted stomach, in sweaty palms, I'm standing up and I'm putting one foot before the other and I'm walking towards the stage while I'm feeling this way, right? I'm noticing my breathing is, is very fast and, um, and I continue to walk and I go, go up the few stairs up to the stage um, and I shake hands with this person and I sit down at a piano that I've, it's a different piano than I've ever played, a digital piano. and uh, and then suddenly somebody says, okay, we're going to play every day I have the blues in the key of E. And then I have about, and then in three seconds, they start playing. And, uh, and so I don't have a lot of time to kind of like work, th work through this <laughs> because suddenly the music is starting and I'm the pianist, right? And so I just start playing. And what I noticed is that uh, uh, that shift of attention to feeling so anxious in my thoughts and my feelings and the sweatiness of my, my forehead or the, my breathing, um, I have no time for that. I have to just start playing. So I start playing. And, uh, and within, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 20 seconds, I'm just playing music. Right? I'm, I'm not actually aware of any anxiety because I have no attentional energy to devote to that. All my energy is going into trying to do a good job playing this music. And, uh, and so it was a wonderful example of how this material works. When you feel anxious, you don't work on those feelings. You use that energy to do something constructive, something that's actually potentially can increase the probability that you'll succeed, right? Uh, and even then, when it comes time to perform, when it comes time to stand up in front of a group, when it comes time to uh, stand in front of the uh, dissertation committee, uh, you basically accept your anxiety as natural. You don't try to fight it. You don't try to fix it. Um, but you focus on what it is that you need to do. And if you really can become immersed in what you need to do, you're no longer anxious. And it's not until I, I find myself in a moment of thinking like, I wonder what key the next song's going to be in. Boom, right? I'm, my attention's back on my thoughts. And what do I do? I make a mistake. Um, and so uh, we actually have an exercise in the course. I teach a course on attention every year, which I'm in the middle of right now online. And one of the exercises is to spend a day and just keep a journal of all the mistakes you make of any kind. You, you spill milk, you know, you misspell a word, whatever it is. And then, and then you look at that at the end of the day and you look at how many of these mistakes were really uh, related to attention. And uh, for most people, the vast majority of our mistakes are related to attention. Um, and it's often related to this self-focused attention. We get caught up in our thoughts and feelings. We lose connection with what we're doing and we make a mistake. So, uh, so I was able to use this material in a very practical way. Um, and as you can tell from the description, it's not that when you get good at this, you don't feel anxious. I was more anxious than almost any time in my life. Um, even though I had been working with the material for more than 25 years, but I was able to apply this, this, these principles and these strategies um, so that I succeeded in doing what was important for me to do. And that's really one of, the, one of the other key differences in this work is that in much of Western therapy, and I know I'm generalizing when I say that, but in much of Western therapy, the outcome is primarily around feeling better right? You're successful if you feel less depressed. You're successful if you feel less anxious. 
in Morita therapy, the, how anxious I felt when I got up on stage or even when I'm playing is not a measure of success. It's that I did this as best that I could. Um, coexisting with that feeling of anxiety, I succeeded at doing what was important for me to do. That's the measure of success that we're looking at. It's such a great, it's such a great illustration, both of the idea of sort of like a, a purpose-driven life as opposed to a feelings-driven life, but also this idea of it's not about changing your feelings. It's about changing your relationship to your feelings. Like that, that's the perfect encapsulation of that idea that, that I love that story. It also makes me think of, have you, have you ever read the book, the inner game of tennis? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. It's, you would love it. It's right up your head. It's this kind of quirky book. It's, he's a tennis pro. And so it's, it's ostensibly a, a manual for, for getting better at playing tennis, improving your tennis game. But really what, what he says as a, you know, after decades of being a tennis pro and a coach, he said that what really gets in the way of people performing and being both good tennis players and, and really enjoying the sport of tennis is it has nothing to do with the outer game, with your grip or your, your techniques. Or once you're beyond the beginner levels, it's all about the inner game. It's, it's what you're doing in your own mind as you're playing. And what he says is that the people who are able to be the most successful and, and have the most enjoyment at a high level are people who can keep their attention off of that kind of self-monitoring, how am I doing right now? What do I need to do? I need to adjust my grip and keep their focus on where's the ball? What's my opponent doing? What's, you know, can, kind of keep their uh, attention outward, focused on what they actually want to be doing. But it's it's so hard, I think partly because of our, our kind of Western culture that really emphasizes... Um, introspection in, in a particular kind of like analytical introspection. Like why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, what does it mean about me that I am thinking this as opposed to, it sounds like what you're talking about is, is a more sort of detached observational introspection, which then allows you to keep your focus on what you want to do <laughs> in your life. Right. Yeah, and I think the tennis example you give is is probably true in almost all sports. You know, there's a there's a, a joke. I, I've never I've never actually played um, much tennis in my life except when I was very young. But um, I did play golf for a number of years, and there was always this kind of joke about you know if you want to really mess somebody's game up, you you ask the person you're playing with. You know, um, I noticed when when you're um, uh, you know driving on when you're hitting your first shot um that you really have this great backswing and i'm wondering when you when you take your backswing are you breathing in or are you breathing out you know and and that'll just totally mess the person up because of course they're focused on the ball <laughs> the golf ball right. in front of them and trying to hit it squarely and now you're shifting their attention to focusing on something that has to do with their internal experience and so i'm going to say something now that's going to be um uh, also a bit uh, radical and maybe threatening to some of the therapists out there. But I think that that's what happens in therapy, in a lot of therapy. When we ask somebody about their, when we say, somebody tells us something that happened, we say, well, you know, tell me how you feel about that, right? We're doing the same thing. We're actually, the questions we ask, not just in a therapeutic setting, but in any conversation, but particularly if you're a therapist, the questions you ask often are directing the person's attention. Say, you know, how do you feel about that? Or some, you know, this, I went in the store and, and to return this thing and this person was rude to me, you know, and, and, you know, well, how did that make you feel? Or, um, you know, my wife and I came up with the decision about whether we're going to adopt and adopt or not. And you say, well, you know, are, are you comfortable with how that came out? These are all questions that point the person's attention towards their internal state, their feelings, their thoughts. Um, and I'm going to suggest that, that they're the wrong questions, that the, the, what we want to be doing with people who are already suffering from spending too much of their energy inside is to actually teach them to shift their energy outside. So one of the things I do when I do training, for example, is I'll, I'll be giving a presentation. And in the middle of the presentation, I'll just ask people to close their eyes. And I'll say, I'm going to give you a quiz. And the quiz is, okay, with your eyes closed, um, tell me the, the color and pattern of my shirt. Right? Mm. And um, tell me what the person, uh, whether the person next to you is wearing a watch. And uh, tell me if there's any 
um, art or, or pictures uh, hanging on the wall of this room. And uh, many people can't answer those questions uh, because they're caught up internally. And so I want to shift this energy from uh, this one extreme, which is the first thing I'm going to ask you when you sit down in my office is, how are you feeling? Which says, that's the most important thing in the world. And when people come in and meet with me one-on-one, I want them to, to understand that the first thing I'm going to ask you is either something like, um, what have you been doing this past week? Or um, uh, what's going on in the world around you? Tell me something you noticed before you open the door to my office, something, something about the environment. Because I want to keep reinforcing the idea of getting your attention off of your feelings and thoughts and engaging in a very sensuous way. You know, when we talk about using our senses, it's a sensuous experience, engaging in a very sensuous way with the world around you. And I'm going to suggest that not only is that good from a mental health standpoint, but um, the world is a miraculous place when you really pay attention to it. You know, whether it's birds or trees or flowers or the stars at night, or, the world is really like an amazing place. <laughs> and, and yet we can, we can walk our dog for a half an hour up, up and down the street and come back and realize we spent the whole time in our mind, right? Thinking about something. We didn't notice one mm. thing. Um, and I say that from personal experience. Right. Um, and so I think as therapists, we want to actually encourage and teach people how to get their attention off of themselves. Uh, I, I, I wish I could argue back with you and <laughs> we could get into an argument, but I, I just really, I really agree with that so much. I, I think that's, it's one of the biggest problems I think in, in my own field. It, it makes me think of in, in your book, you have this, um, this quote from Kierkegaard, who is one of my favorite philosophers. I don't know how you could be a therapist specialized in anxiety and not, not love Kierkegaard, but <laughs> the, the, the quote is to, ve- <laughs> to venture causes anxiety not to venture is to lose oneself. And, mm-hmm. and in some ways, I feel like this is the message I'm trying to help all of my clients understand, mm-hmm. which is that if you spend all your time trying to get rid of or run away from a painful feeling, there's an extremely high cost, which is that you, you miss out on life. The, to use a term from economics, the opportunity cost is far too high. Mm-hmm. The, it, it, even if it were possible, to really extinguish these, all these uncomfortable emotions, you, it would mean sacrificing your life, like being able to do the things that you really want to do and, and live the way you really want to live. Um, so I, and, but I think it's fascinating that, that as you point out, unintentionally, our, our profession, my profession anyway, does this, reinforces that, you know, we really need to spend our, our energy and attention on how we're feeling. So let, let me, maybe if I can push back a little bit though on this. Okay. What if the, what if the problem is, it's not necessarily thinking about our feelings. It's the particular way in which we think about them, which is we, in my experience, most of us, including a lot of therapists, I think we, we tend to be either explicitly or implicitly evaluative of our feelings. You know, what does this feeling mean? What, what does this feeling say about me? What is this feeling predicting is going to happen? So we're very analytical about our feelings. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, uh, and this is a, a much more Eastern way, I, I think, of approaching the question is simply you, you can think about your feelings in a very detached observational way, which is more akin to maybe just noticing how the experience, how you're feeling. So I wonder if there, and a lot of times in my experience, I've found that if you can do that, if you can shift out of that evaluative way of thinking and into a more kind of simply observational one, it, that's a, it seems to me an, a better platform for taking action and kind of getting on with your life, your actual life. Um, what do you think about that distinction? Does that, or, or do you think it's better to just not think about them in, at all and, and sort of keep your focus outwards? Well, I, um, I probably would use the um, framework of attention. So when I when I teach attention, I use this metaphor, which which is a is very limited, but it's a good place to start in terms of how we um, how we understand attention, and that it's a metaphor of a flashlight. And so your attention is like a flashlight, and when your attention mm. is um, pointed towards your thoughts then your thoughts are the object of your attention. 
right? When your attention is pointed towards your feelings, like, like if you're depressed, then your feelings are the object of your attention. And when your attention is pointed towards the, uh, the downy woodpecker at the bird feeder, then you, the, the woodpecker is the object of your attention. And so we actually can move our attention around. Um, I can, I can do that right now, just being in the room. I can, I can move from you know, looking at my wood stove, which is uh, in the living room to uh, noticing what I'm feeling at the moment or, or whether like my hands actually are a little bit cold because uh, up here in Vermont, it's about 31 right now. It's <laughs> still below <laughs> freezing, even though it's spring. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't, and that's a great example. I didn't realize, didn't, I wasn't aware that my hands felt cold until I actually shifted my attention towards how, right. how am I feeling, right? Um, so we can use that flashlight to go into different places. And I think um, uh, recognizing that when we are caught up in our thoughts, we're really putting our flashlight of attention on our thoughts. Uh, and I think the what you just mentioned, the ability to observe that, okay, I'm having these thoughts right now, um, is a much more effective way to be able to um, work with our thoughts in the sense that we can uh, see that our thoughts are different from the flashlight, right? And right. <clears throat> when we're able to do that, often it becomes easier not to get caught up in our thoughts in the sense of being reactive, being dramatic, um, just kind of following this whole path of an emotional charge of uh, anxiety or fear or whatever it is. So, so I would agree with you. I think that the ability to do that, which actually is parallels the ability to do that in meditation. So if, uh, for mm. people out there who have meditated, particularly if you've been in a retreat kind of setting, you know that that's mostly, it, again, there are forms of meditation that do this differently, but it, in Zen meditation, the way I was trained, um, you're really just trying to watch what comes up. It, it really is like somebody's turning, you know, someone's turned on a TV and you're just kind of watching what comes up, you know, and, and here's this thought about, I wonder what we're having for breakfast, you know, and here's this thought, I really miss my daughter. And, you know, all these, all these different thoughts are kind of coming up on the screen and you're just observing those thoughts. Um, and you're not really um, looking at what they mean or why you're having them or where they're coming from. Uh, you're just watching the process of them arising. Uh, you're being aware of them, and then they, and then di them disappearing. So there's again, there's no resistance to those thoughts. So I think the description that you you just gave about being able to observe those thoughts, I think, um, is is a a skill. Again, I go back to this idea of a skill that we can learn to do over time. Um, but the key thing that you have to add to that is, uh, if if you just continue to observe your thoughts endlessly, um, you can kind of separate yourself and realize that your flashlight is just staying focused on your thoughts. Um, and that works great if your purpose is to meditate. But if your purpose is to write a book or to learn to become a blues piano player or um, anything else in, in life that is meaningful to you, then it, um, very quickly you have to notice those thoughts, accept them. Okay, I'm having this anxious thought right now. Um, and then shift your energy and attention towards what is it that I need to be doing that's important right now. Yeah, that, that reminds me of another quote I kind of highlighted from your book, which is, action isn't something that comes after figuring things out. Action is a way of figuring things out, which I just, I just love. I think we have such a, a bias towards, at least in Western culture, of we have to understand it first, and then we'll be able to do it. Like I have to understand why I'm feeling anxious and then I'll be able to go play the piano when really the causality is completely backwards. <laughs> like when you start playing the piano, the anxiety kind of takes care of itself, right? <laughs> yeah. And it, it, but it, it also comes from this idea that, uh, and, and this is interesting because I think that, um, that in my experience, I don't have any data to support this, but in my experience, often the people who are the most anxious are the people who are the smartest. People who are the most intelligent, and I think it comes from this experience. If if you um, are intelligent or smart, whatever that means, that um, that you're capable of figuring out life in your mind. And uh, and we work with the assumption that it's impossible to figure out life in your mind. And and we're in a situation now where that's 
there's no time I remember that's more obvious than this with the viral situation and the economy and the stock market and, and quarantining people. And we don't even know if there's immunity at this point. There's all these questions. We can't figure, I can't figure this out in my mind, right? And so uh, what happens uh, for people who are used to trying to figure out life in their mind first is that we get paralyzed and don't take action because we have this idea that we have to figure out the solution first in our mind, and then we execute it. And so the quote that you just read, the idea that uh, um, taking action you know, is, is the way of figuring things out, means that uh, even when we don't have things figured out in our mind, even when we're very confused, we still take some kind of action. It may be a small step, and we pay really good attention to, the, to what happens, but, um, but we take action because as we take action, the situation changes. Right, it's like throwing a pebble into a pond. These ripples go out, um, and the situation changes, and our understanding of the situation changes. So we're much more likely to not only make progress, but to see what needs to be done next um, by taking those small steps than by kind of um, waiting until we've got everything mapped out as if it was an architectural drawing. So, uh, so I think it's to me it it is a um, a, a different view about how we solve problems, how we move forward in our life when we're not sure, when we're confused about what to do. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm not totally sure about the, the correlation between um, intelligence, maybe broadly in anxiety, but what I, what I do absolutely observe is that people who are highly analytical definitely struggle with anxiety more than others, I think. It's, mm -hmm. that, it's that, that facet of intelligence, which is, I'm going to think analytically about this in my own head mm -hmm. and people who are really good at that and who have been rewarded for being good at that for decades. It's very hard to put that down when you're really good at it. And when you've been so rewarded for it in the past and yes. to sort of choose a different way of solving problems. Mm -hmm. um, so I, we're, we're running low on time here and I want to be respectful of your time, but I would like to kind of end at our beginning, so to speak with, with the idea of procrastination. You, you talked about this, uh, kind of procrastinating in a sense with your dishes when you were, uh, in your early twenties in your, your apartment. Um, so I, I just want to touch on again, a one more quote from your book in, in a section where you were talking about procrastination. Um, and you, you say procrastination isn't something you need to stop doing. It's something you need to get better at. And I just, I think that is really fascinating. So could you unpack that a little bit? Like what, what that says about how you view the nature of procrastination compared to how most of us think about it? Uh, sure. And uh, let me just explain to, to the audience, because I've actually written a few different books. And I think the book that you're quoting from is The Art of Taking Action. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. I should have been clear. Um, the Art of Taking Action, Lessons from Japanese Psychology. And so this issue of um, uh, procrastination not being something that we have to overcome, but get, get better at, is that... Uh, one of the probably the most successful ways that I procrastinate and that many people procrastinate is by not doing the thing that we need to do and doing something else instead, right? And, uh, and so <clears throat> the real measure, I think, of us being um, uh, productive is doing the most important things, right? And, but procrastination to me is primarily uh, the inability to to manage or cope with our um, our feeling state because we procrastinate primarily on things we don't feel like doing just like with my dishes um i i for years was a big procrastinator on doing my taxes right and that also got me in trouble when i was younger um <clears throat> unfortunately i i had to learn from a lot of mistakes about uh how this works and but but part of what i learned the big part was that uh, we have to be able to coexist with our feeling state of uh, which is um, avoidance, which is not wanting to do something. The anticipation of an action like doing the taxes, doing the dishes, um, uh, results in a feeling state which is uncomfortable for us, right? And so we avoid doing that action uh, as a way of hopefully, in our the way we're thinking about it, we. We avoid doing the action as a way of hopefully avoiding increasing the intensity of this unpleasant feeling state. Uh, so we're happy to do other things. We'll do other things that we like. We'll do other things that we uh, 
uh, like less than the thing we're avoiding even, right? Sometimes I actually have, have gotten things done that I really don't like to do, but the thing that I'm avoiding, I really don't like to do. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'll, I'll, you know, if my only default is I'll do this other thing I really don't like to do, then um, I, I often can, can do that. Uh, but I think dealing with procrastination, overcoming it is, is really a function of being clear about what your purpose is. Um, and, and once you're clear about that, acting on that purpose, regardless of how you're feeling. Uh, it's it's mostly not a time management issue. It's a uh, purpose slash feeling kind of issue. We have if we can get clarity on our purpose, what's important for us to do in our life, which is not necessarily what's urgent or what we enjoy doing. Right? It's what's important to do. Um, if you're if you're a writer, you you know this experience. It's important for you to to work on your novel, um, but you don't feel like doing it because you don't you don't know what to write and you you have anxiety about it and you have doubts about whether you should even be writing a novel and so all these things are going on so you you basically avoid it and you do other things instead so if we have clarity of purpose and then if we can move forward and coexist with this feeling state the feeling state of anxiety the feeling state of boredom the feeling state of fear and uh, what we do in our training is we actually have this this one woman once uh, from California years ago, uh, she was making a presentation at the end of the training, she's one of the participants. And she had a little cardboard briefcase that she had cut out from a piece of cardboard. And she just said, you know, you just put your feelings in your briefcase and you take them with you. And then she kind of walked in a circle. And it's really a kind of great metaphor. You know, it's not that you overcome your feelings of anxiety or fear or doubt or boredom. Um, you basically take those feelings with you. If you if you have to go someplace, you know they they sit in the back seat, um, but you drive. Not the feelings don't drive. You drive, but they come along for the ride. And uh, you know one of the people who does this really well uh, presents this from a standpoint of our thoughts is a guy by the name of Michael Singer. I don't know if you if you know of his work. He wrote a book mm. called um, mm -mm. The Untethered Soul, and. Uh, he talks about this in, in relation to thoughts primarily as the idea that this chatter that goes on in our mind is like a roommate that we can't get rid of. And uh, it's, he actually presents it in a very humorous way. I, I love the way he does this. Uh, but he, he talks about, you know, that uh, it's kind of your, your, your internal roommate is always chattering something that is aggravating and agitating, but you can't, you can't shut him or her off. You know, they just keep doing this. So, you know, you you uh, go to look at buying a car and you're thinking of buying this car and you're kind of ready to do it. And your roommate says, I don't think this is a good idea, you know, and 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 starts kind of going along that track. Uh, um, and then you decide, OK, I, maybe I won't buy the car. I'll just I'll just keep looking. And then on your way home, your roommate's saying, oh, I should have bought that car. It was a great deal. You'll never find another. You'll never find another car with with a deal like that, and and so you begin to realize it's kind of goes back to your, this idea of observing your thoughts, right? That hmm. um, that you have this roommate who, if they were actually another person, you probably they probably would not be your friend, <laughs> and, um, right. and even if they were, you probably wouldn't wouldn't trust what they say, right? You wouldn't trust somebody who says as you're walk as you're on a diet. Um, walking past a bakery, they say, oh, just, you've been doing really well. Just go in and have a piece of chocolate cake. And then as you walk out of the bakery, having eaten the cake, that same voice is saying, you shouldn't have done that. You know, you know, you're on a diet, right? And you wouldn't trust the advice, but we trust our thoughts as if somehow this was like constantly wisdom that's arising in us. So it's not only that we learn to observe those thoughts, but we, we learn to actually be really wary of the advice that we're getting from our thoughts at any given moment. Uh, and so, so this idea of being anchored to your purpose, I think, allows us to write our novels, to exercise, to eat healthy foods instead of sweet foods, to not overindulge in alcohol. I mean, almost any area of life. Um, I think is affected by this when we become clear about our purpose and we learn the skill of coexisting with those thoughts and those feelings, but not abandoning our purpose just because we're having those thoughts and feelings. Hmm. 
Well, Greg, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, where where can people go to? We, we've mentioned your um, your book, The Art of Taking Action. Um, where can people go to learn more about you and, and your work? Well, um, we have a website uh, that um, we've built called Thirty Thousand Days. Org. So it's 30,000 days, all one word, dot org. And that actually has uh, most of my writing um, besides the, the books that I've published. Uh, so that's a great resource. Um, we have a library of Japanese psychology, which has um, probably 25 years worth of, of resources in there. Uh, and, uh, and I offer a, a series of online courses, probably five or six courses a year on themes like attention, Taking, we have a course on taking action, uh, a course on living on purpose. So all courses um, which are within the kind of principles and philosophy that I've been talking about. Uh, if you do a course with me, one of the things you'll see is that there's a tremendous emphasis on experience and exercises. Um, and it's not a head kind of thing. I don't uh, put out videos where I'm lecturing and talking. I give you an exercise with something something to do that day. Because uh, if we work from the uh, assumption, which I do, that mental wellness is really a function of learning skills, right? Uh, the four skills I talk about are working with your attention, acceptance, we've, we talked a little bit about that, Nick, and uh, coexisting with your feelings, and then self-reflection, which we really haven't, haven't touched on here. Those four skills. And, and skills are learnable things, right? It's like you can learn to hit a backhand in tennis. You can uh, learn to shoot a free throw in basketball. You can learn to play blues piano in different keys. Uh, those are skills. And the only way to develop skills is practice. You cannot, if you are sitting in a therapist's office and just talking and not doing anything uh, in terms of developing skills, the only skill you're developing is talking and probably talking about yourself in many cases. And so you want to look at how can I develop the skills that actually will support my living a good life and doing the things that are important for me to do. Um, and the only way to do that is through practice. You know, you can't, you can't read about it. You can't listen to it. can't go to workshops. Um, you'll learn more in your head. Uh, but in Japanese, they actually have a word taiken, which means body knowledge. Um, and it's through, through that body knowledge. Like when I play piano um, in a, and I'm improvising, um, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. My fingers know what to do. That's body knowledge. And that's really how you want to develop these skills of like working with your attention or coexisting with your feelings. You want to practice them to the point where they just become a natural way of moving through your life. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.